0: Today we'll talk about Peter Pan, whom you all know from your childhood. In this scene we find ourselves taken to the threshold of various realms and various spheres. Despite its apparently simple contents, its playful nature, this scene is characterised by a series of tensions that complicate our first reading, the one we make with our children's arms. In the scene, several movements can be distinguished. The first one starts with Peter's shadow that's taken the center stage. Wendy is seen to both empathize with Peter and reprimand him. She's also seen to try and stick Peter's shadows back on, stitch it back on. As he gives himself all the credit for this, Wendy forces Peter Pan to acknowledge the superiority of the female sex, which leads to the second movement of this passage where Peter and Wendy get closer. Emboldened by Peter's words, Wendy offers him a kiss. Seeing that Peter Pan doesn't seem to know what a kiss is, to avoid further humiliation, Wendy gives Peter a thimble or symbol the two sound very similar. The second movement is really one that focuses on proximity and intimacy. In exchange for this thimble, Peter gives her an acorn. Paradoxically, only after trying to kiss Peter does Wendy and Peter pass each other's age. At this stage, Peter exposes what will later be referred to as the Peter syndrome, Peter Pan syndrome. I don't ever want to be a man. In the third and last movement of the scene, Peter Pan. In the third and last movement of the scene, Peter tells Wendy a story about the fairies, about the genesis of fairies. No sooner has he finished telling stories. Then he remembers Tinkerbell has been in the chest, locked up. As he opens the chest, a rather cross fairy comes out, only to tell Peter off. The progression of the passage is characterised by a move from a duet, Wendy and Peter, to a triad, Wendy, Peter, Tinkerbell. But also from a move from decorum and fine manners to rudeness. The scene is also one that is characterised by tension between gift giving and initiation. Also, not only do the main, two of the main protagonists meet in the scene, I mean Tinkerbell and Wendy, but also two apparently incompatible worlds meet. This passage is also characterized by a range of heightened emotions from laughter to tears, humility to cockiness, admiration and rejection. The gender roles in this passage and the way they are represented are crucial in defining the identities of the characters. A tension between teaching and telling, knowing and believing can also be felt. Two ways of framing reality, two different and competing paradigms, two ways of interacting. In turn, embodied by each of the main protagonists. I will read this scene as a paradoxical coming of age scene where a performance of gender unfolds. The scene is arguably. An example of early 20th century children's literature. And it's with the tropes of children's literature that it raises hard questions on empathy, identity, and growing up. So I will call my first section, To Have Fun. The way these two children, Wendy and Peter, are depicted, and the way The passage praises imagination, bears witness to the romantic heritage of the story. Coming of age seems to be rejected on account of the corruption of society. So in my second section, I will be looking at the long shadow of romanticism. However, despite the apparently conservative gender agenda of the main protagonists, the scene also lends itself to a more subversive reading. So my final section, I called Endangered and Gendered Identities. I'm sorry about this noise. It's my cat. He's just seen a bird. To have fun then. Among the most significant tropes of children's literature are humour, fantasy, and didacticism. And it's fairly clear that a sense of comedy and theatrical entertainment can be felt here. Originally a play, Peter Pan, as a novel, borrows some of the features of a comedy. A sense of mild comedy can be felt, which contributes to the liveliness, the light-heartedness, and the dynamism of the scene. Despite the more somber tones of some of Pete's remarks, this scene is characterized by a general lightness of tone. It results in part from the fact that dialogue prevails over a narration, Also, the central quid pro quo on the exact nature of a kiss can arguably trigger a smile. The way that it questions the arbitrariness of science, as Peter assumes the phrase, giving a smile, or giving a kiss, pardon me, implies giving an object, recalls nonsense literature that was so in vogue in the past few decades. Peter's lexical ignorance, as when on line five, for instance, he asks the meaning of the verb "sawing," is also comic, all the more so as it contrasts with the braggish, Mr. Know-it-all sort of posture he's had so far. So my other cat is is, uh, hungry, uh, as you can hear in the background, sorry about that, and also I'm realising that my neighbour is is drilling um, his wall. Shut up, will you? <laughs> Don't do that! Peter's translation of how Tinkerbell insults Wendy is also comic. It's a sophomoric sort of humour that we have here, and it also hints at the general sense of light-heartedness, and light-hearted comedy that pervades the whole scene. Humour is a hallmark, I just hit my cat, is a hallmark of children's literature, even to this day. Um, If early writings for children were almost always instructional before the 19th century, you know, there was spelling, conduct, or pious books, it must be said, however, that entertainment and fun made its entry on the pages of children's books with John Newberry whose first new book for uh, first book for the entertainment of children was a little pretty pocket book intended for the instruction and amusement of little master Tommy and pretty Miss Polly and that was around 1744 that was fairly early in the history of children's literature. The theatricality of the scene filled with exclamations um, and the range of heightened emotions from pride to tears through to admiration, outbursts and shouting and dancing culminates in Tinkerbell's fury. And all of these emotions contribute to the dynamism of the scene, which progresses through Wendy's relentless questioning. I hope you can hear my cat, I'm a terrible master. Um, Historians of children's books have often seen two forces, Uh, competing in children's literature these two forces being on the one hand realism and didacticism and on the other fun and fantasy and i think that this passage is very much in keeping with entertainment uh, a marked tendency for entertainment to um, be central to children's literature i just hit my cat again Um, so what i'd like to do now is to explore um, (laughs) I find it hard to focus, please excuse me, um, to explore the other driving force within children's literature in the 19th century, which is fantasy. We're taking into a made up world poised between domesticity and escape, realism and fantasy. In the Romantic period, the start of the 19th century fantasy was really gaining momentum in children's literature. And this scene certainly bears witness to this. The scene stages a meeting between two characters who acknowledge each other's existence for the very first time, Wendy and Tinkerbell. Each can be seen as the living embodiment of two worlds apart. The chest of drawers can be read as a metonymy, a metaphor of fantasy, a world of fiction whose doors, whose lids, rather, can be opened, a Pandora's box unleashing the magic of Neverland. Open it and magic materializes on the spot as we see line 78 when Peter releases Tinkerbell and lets the magic out. The rules of the real physical world are suspended as Tinkerbell rests on the cuckoo clock, a metaphorical image of the suspension of time. The intangible shadow escaping from Peter's body is associated with concrete adjectives. It's a little creased, it's draggled. And this association with concrete adjectives tends to erase the boundaries between reality and magic as the physically impossible becomes possible it's a passage that shows just how bendable and flexible the fantasy genre is. must the fantasy story take place solely in the made-up land? Peter van says no fantastic characters can slip in and out of their respective worlds here the scene is poised in between two worlds the nursery becomes the stage for for the encounter between the marvelous and the domestic between elsewhere and inside between here and there. Such boundaries are a trope in children's literature. Children's literature indeed is often concerned with the intangible frontier between two apparently incompatible worlds. That meeting between home life as it's referred to between domesticity on the one hand and fantasy on the other, isn't a clash. It Rather, it's a, it's an interaction, a connection, which is symbolized by Wendy's stitches. It's therefore not surprising that Kensington Garden should serve as a junction, a gateway, the backdrop, of fantasy, a place where characters can slip in and out of a fantasy world, a real place in West London filled with fantastical creatures. Remember that fairies have made their way into English-speaking children's literature fairly early. The brother Grimm's fairy tales were first published in German in 1812 and were translated into English and were very successful in the first half of the 19th century, uh, 1823. Hans Christian Andersen's stories began to appear in the 1830s. So it would make sense that this um, whole energy and this whole atmosphere and ambience contaminates, in a way, Barry's um, writing at the turn of the 20th century. Finally, this scene can also be read as a coming of age narrative, but an ambiguous one. That's my next point. This scene is an ambiguous rite of passage. So a coming of age narrative can be defined as a narrative in which a character experiences a transition from childhood to adulthood, and uh, the loss somehow of innocence that comes with it, which allows for graduation into adulthood. This typically involves a series of tests and trials successfully overcome with the contribution of helping characters. So this scene stages a rite of passage for Peter, who shows courage despite suffering and passes one of the very first tests of the book, recovering his shadow. In the scene Peter Pan does manage to become himself again, a more complete version of himself. He becomes whole again showing bravery and courage in a boys don't cry sort of moment. But paradoxically, the scene also introduces the rejection of ageing, as if the coming of age narrative was being subverted. Peter is the boy who wouldn't grow up. The modal would is interesting. It's emphasizing unwillingness here. This idea goes hand in hand with the ambiguous portrayal of these children, they in turn sound like flat characters, in turn there's more psychological depth to them than it seems at first sight. Peter is a mixture of carelessness and cockiness, but he ultimately realises he hurt Wendy's feelings. Wendy shows empathy and kindness, but is also showing pedantry and is mocking Peter before accepting his knowledge as well. Interestingly, the scene involves, as a coming-of-age scene would, some sort of graduation into a new stage, a key stage in child development. A number of psychologists and psychoanalysts have looked at this scene as a scene that inaugurates a new stage in child development, this idea of having a theory of mind, a thing they define as the ability to understand that one's knowledge, one's beliefs and one's feelings may not be the same as someone else's. This is usually thought to be learned naturally by most children around the age of three or four, but the term was not in use until the late 1970s. Interestingly, in 1985, psychologists would show that failure to employ theory of mind to recognize that one's one's knowledge, beliefs, and feelings are not the same as somebody else's, as a symptom of autism, Asperger's syndrome, and some psychiatric conditions. It even went further as a Cambridge neuroscientist published a book called the theory of the mind and um, in which she regarded Barry as a naturalist of the mind, a writer who was able to dissect and describe the mind of children in a way that shows how their psyche develops. So What I'd like to suggest here is that the progression of the passage suggests that although coming of age is a thing that is subverted, still a new cognitive state is in turn reached by Pete, Pan and Wendy, with each character receiving a form of teaching and knowledge from the other. Wendy being on the side of norms, and Peter on the side of stories, Wendy has the upper hand first and is the educator, and Peter Pan then assumes that position in the second half of the passage. To come up with this interpretation, i based myself on two Guardian articles that I'm going to include in the bibliography of this podcast. First with the fairies, fairies were a great subject of interest for romantics, in keeping with their taste for all things medieval, remember Morgan Le Fay in the Arthurian cycle. It should also be remembered that the ancestors of fairies were nymphs, and nymphs were often to be seen with the mythological figure of Pan. Pan. who is the ancestor of Peter Pan and who, um, ro- whom romantics were really fond of. Fairy interaction and popular folklore was very frequent among, um, among romantics. This isn't to say that Barry was a romantic, but his project and the underlying assumptions guiding his perception of magic, childhood, bear witness to Barry's, to his romantic legacy. The use of the word romantic to define Tinkerbell at the end of the passage situates his writing in a literary tradition which pits romanticism and imagination against rationality. Pan is a middleman between a world where imagination prevails. Imagination is a value most cherished by romantics, you remember that from my class on Mary Shelley. An imagination is a language that requires a translator. The prefix "trans" is metaphorical of Peter's condition. It conveys the sense of transition, of acrossness, of beyondness that characterizes Peter. Central to this scene is also children's gaze, which is symbolized by Wendy. Her wonder, her sense of wonder is central to characterizing the aesthetic assumptions behind this text. Wendy's wonder mirrors the reader's wonder. Wonder is a notion that is etymologically connected with the marvellous with miracles and with all objects of astonishment which pertain to magic and fantasy. My belief is that wonder, that wonder of Wendy's can be read in light of Coleridge's famed suspension of disbelief. That suspension of disbelief, it was was characterized, that suspension of disbelief, pardon me, is what characterizes our position as readers, as well as Wendy's position as character. The willing suspension of disbelief for the moment, that's how the British poets phrased it in 1817 with reference to the audiences for literary works. The concept that to become emotionally involved in a narrative, audiences must react as if the characters were real and as if the events were happening now even though they knew, even though they know, it's only a story. Wendy's disbelief can be heard in such phrases as, you don't mean to tell me that there is a fairy in this room, which is an antithesis. Although her disbelief was arguably suspended right from the beginning with her implausible sawing of the shadow, we realize towards the end of the passage that she wants to see um, that magic, that wonder. The word admiration also pertains to sight. Her position then certainly mirrors that of the reader, who is also invited to suspend his disbelief in a very romantic sort of move. It's suspe- that suspension of disbelief which in turns give way, uh, gives way, pardon me, to belief. So as Wendy's knowledge is dismissed or mocked and only later acknowledged, Peter becomes the knowing character. He has a knowledge that is on the side of imagination and, and faith. The knowledge which children receive more generally is dismissed, is rejected there's a rejection of the contemporary contemporary approach to education. Children know such a lot now, notably because this knowledge follows the demands not of imagination, but of society. He laments what his father and mother wanted him to be, what he was to be when he would be a man. The use of um, the modal he was to be what he was to be signals this sense of inevitability the absence of leeway the absence of freedom and imagination a sense of fate that's really fiercely rejected in favor of fairies but interestingly fairies are also connected to this idea of fate you know they were connected to the parker but really what peter pan rejects is modernity, and this echoes very much Rousseauist notions that children are naturally innocent and corrupted by society and as such they should be subjected to as little formal education as possible. A poet like uh, Wordsworth in his Ode on Intimations of Mortality from Early Childhood also lays particular stress on children's fresh and prejudiced and innocent perception of the world knowledge, format, education are things that kill off imagination in the same way as grammar um, kills um, the enthusiasm of kids. So what we have in this passage is this really idealized vision of childhood following Rousseau and in the hands of romantic poets Like Blake or Wordsworth, childhood came to be seen as especially close to God, as a force for good. And in a way, Pan embodies this idealized vision of childhood as he tries to escape it, uh, and as he does escape the passing of time. Pan is the embodiment of a cult of childhood that um, could be um, seen to develop in the 19th century. Pan is also characterized by a form of hubris, of deceit, of conceit, mischievousness, which echoes the origin of his name and which also echoes multiple ideas uh, of, um, of the construction of childhood. In the 18th century and in the 19th century, for example, not everyone subscribed to Rousseau's theories about the nature of childhood. A few children's writers still held to the doctrine of original sin, which many saw childhood as the raw material from which adults were made, rather than an ideal state to be valued and preserved. And Pan isn't an angel. He lies, lying is one of his characteristics. He uses language to lure Wendy to deceive her He uses this voice that no woman has ever been able to resist. So he has this ability, this capacity to spin stories. By doing so, he acknowledges the performative power of language. So, really, Peter Pan in the scene is a symbol of creativity, but also of fiction. And the narrator is not deluded by this. He refers to Peter Pan's words as tedious talk. In the same way as Wendy then is the mirrored image of the reader or of the audience, Anne is the mirrored image of the storyteller. In the hands of uh, romantics, children were endowed with magical, imaginative powers, poetic powers in the Greek sense of poiesis but in a way that is very ambiguous and that testifies to the ambivalent sort of identity that characterizes Peter Pan. Identities aren't as simple and easy to grasp as they seem to be at first in this passage. I will look at identities as endangered identities first, despite the fact that they are rigidly gendered identities. So identities are elusive in this passage, and uh, Peter Pan's identity perhaps perhaps even more than, than any other. His rejection of genealogy, his rejection of development, the fact that his identity is disjointed, broken, fragmented, his severed shadow serves as a symbol of his difficulty of being at one, of being whole, of being one. So we should keep in mind that Peter won't be framed that easily. And also that uh, what he symbolises isn't necessarily one-sided. If we go back to the Pan myth, Pan, the faun, isn't necessarily a positive figure. So identities here are dismembered, are double-sided. And they're also shown to be rigidly organized. Despite the fantastic tone of the passage, gender identities in this passage reflect the conservative gender norms of the Edwardian age, which are themselves partly a legacy of the Victorian times. Wendy sounds like a disturbing mix between a mother and a wife on more occasions than once, which echo Um, which echoes, pardon me, the conservative conduct books that were still circulating and that were still widely read. Wendy is a true angel in the house. The phrase angel in the house refers to Coventry Patmore's narrative poem which um, had been inspired to him by his wife Emily and which charts their traditional courtship and marriage. Today it's known for the way in which it idealized women as devoted, docile wives and mothers, paragons of domesticity, virtue and humility and that's very much in line with what Wendy shows. She's acting like a proper housewife if she addresses Peter Pan as her little man, which is a hypochorism to be sure, a term that's effective but that's also belittling in a way. Peter Pan is literally diminished by his lost shadow and Wendy simply adds insult to injury, as she calls him that. Peter Pan owes his bliss to Wendy and the word bliss is interesting so far as it's a word that that is evocative of marriage more than friendship. And um, Wendy's housewife works as some kind of an objective correlative of her sense of duty here materialized by by this object that she uses to to show her credentials as a potential a future wife to be. So in a way each character performs his or her gender in a very theatrical way. There's a lot of role play involved in the way those characters perform their gender identity. The bedroom becomes a kind of stage where Peter and Wendy can play, pretend, and perform their gender. The passage is performative in a way that reminds that reminds me of Judith Butler's concept of the performance of gender. I've included a video of Butler talking about that concept that she coined um, in the 1990s. So gender performance is this idea that gender is something inscribed in daily practices learned and performed and repeated which is based on cultural norms of femininity and masculinity so the main point of gender performance as a concept is that it suggests that neither gender nor sex is completely natural and that both are in some way or other performed and become naturalized over time. We act and talk and walk in ways that consolidate the idea of being a man or being a woman. The scene stages the performance of gender on a very dramatic mode with Peter Pan acting like a man and thereby Putting, placing his gender in conformity with the norms of the time and, and Wendy performs her gender in a way that consolidates the perception of that gender identity as a natural phenomenon. The use of modals is interesting here. I shan't cry, he says, which performs this um, manly um, kind of stereotype of the stiff upper lip Masculinity, boys will be boys, or boys don't cry, sort of posture uh, expressed with boldness and cocky arrogance, as opposed to this, Wendy laments, um, "I should have ironed that shadow," um, so sort of in a way that is that is that shows how prone to self-doubt she is, the way she uh, withdraws and hides her face um, behind a blanket disappears in a way, um, participates in that performance of gender. Things are a little bit more complex than that though. A common perception is that post-Victorian and Edwardian attitudes to sex is one of primness and modesty, especially for female subjects. Interestingly, however, Wendy's figure is a lot more ambiguous than it seems. Her coyness and the way the scene unfolds suggests a subtext can be found and can be understood. In fact, coming of age isn't exactly where we could think at first. And the scene, more than simply a rite of passage, reads as a kind of sexual initiation in disguise, prompted by Wendy's engaging attitude. <laughs> the scene could be read differently. More than just a rite of passage, it could be seen as some kind of sexual initiation in disguise, prompted by Wendy's engaging attitude. A more mature person, Wendy invites Peter to kiss him, embodying the coy mistress archetype. This scene, in fact, explores the liminal space between adulthood and childhood, between friendship and desire. This kiss is described fairly ambiguously. Could be friendly or erotic, motherly or amorous, and Wendy is the one that contributes to giving the scene a very intimate feel. She was quite surprised but interested, and she indicated in the charming drawing-room manner by a touch on her nightgown that he could sit nearer her. She's the one that allows intimacy to happen. The passage is also fairly, would be a fairly conventional gift-giving scene, an exchange of symbols had it not been for Peter's ignorance of the ways of the world, of the facts of life, to put it euphemistically. But I don't think this scene is entirely innocent, that the bed should be the central prop to this stage isn't innocent. The acorn Peter gives her instead of a kiss is a treasure of ambiguity. An acorn is a symbol of virility and manhood, and has been one for centuries, it's a seed and metaphorically it may refer to male genitals. This of course isn't to suggest that Barry meant this reading to be made, but on a metaphorical level the scene symbolism is a lot more complex than the sanitized and puritan version Disney offered. That Peter, so my neighbors are um, improving their homes, that Peter should be the object of two female characters' desire that he should be at the center of the scene. As a prize to catch is made very clear at the end of the passage as Tinkerbell, who acts as a jealous, possessive shrew, um, directly borrowed from uh, domestic comedies or romance, hidden from sight but clearly eavesdropping and telling her husband off, further illustrates the sexual tensions of the scene which develops on the verge of vaudeville. The scene of woman-on-woman aggression that unfolds confirms that um, this text places these children in the paradoxical position on the frontier of innocence and knowledge To conclude, this passage may not be limited to a single, definite, rigid interpretation. Its iconic nature resides in the polymorphous readings it lends itself to, a celebration of the imaginative force of childhood and a criticism of its delusions, a criticism of adult society filtered through an adult perspective a stereotypical rendition of constraining and limiting gender norms as well as a dramatization of their transgressions.